0: So as I said, we're looking, we're in the book of Deuteronomy, right? We've gone, we've got 12 chapters in or 11 chapters in, right? And we've been looking at this idea, like I said, through the lens of being invited to know God. Like, I don't know if that surprises you or not, or even this idea that that God invites us to know him. I think we talk a lot about how Jesus saves us or, you know, like people need to be saved or I got saved or things like that. All that's great, that's important. But I think sometimes maybe we don't talk enough about the idea that God actually invites us not just to save us, but God actually invites us to know him. He wants us to know him. And as far as I know, there's no other god in any other religion like that that the God of the Bible says, "I want to know you and we're gonna talk next week about the idea that God says I want to partner with you in making the world the way it was always supposed to be. And it's incredible and it's, it's, it's profound and so, in, in week one, we looked at this idea that God wants to know us. In Deuteronomy chapter one to four, He invites us to remember what He has done for us. And as we remember what God has done for us, right, He calls the Israelites here to remember God's past faithfulness and deliverance in chapters one to four. And and that means remembering uh, for them. Uh, The exodus and the time in the wilderness that they spent in the wilderness and how God miraculously provided for them. He was graceful to them even though they rebelled. And for you and me, we talked about how we remember then not only the exodus, but we remember not only the Passover and the wilderness wanderings, but we remember what Christ has done for us. That it's no coincidence that the Passover, that Jesus was crucified at the time of the Passover, like that wasn't an accident. That was on purpose, right? And the Last Supper was part of the Passover feast that when Jesus says, here's the Eucharist or the communion or Last Supper, whichever word you want to use for that. When he uh, inaugurates that or brings that into being, he connects it with the Passover, Right? And he invites us to remember our own wilderness wonderings, how we so often have rebelled and wandered away from God, tr- refusing to trust that he actually has what is best for us in mind. And so that's what we talked about in week one. God's continued kindness and grace and faithful to, to, faithfulness to us and how we need to remember that. On a regular basis, last week we looked at Deuteronomy's chap- Deuteronomy chapters five to eleven. It's not the book of Deuteronomy's um, Deuteronomy chapters five to eleven, and we talked about how God wants us to worship Him, and Him alone, and that that is not some like self-righteous thing or something like that. You know, they, like, but rather, God created us as worshiping beings and that our hearts wonder so often, but that they find their truest rest in God and in worshiping him and him alone. And so Deuteronomy 5 to 11 shows us how our our hearts lead us to worship. Our hearts lead us to worship, but... That the converse, and I think this is true too, it shows us that the converse is true. The opposite is true. That actually in some ways, worship trains our hearts to love. That as we worship rightly, as we worship the right thing, it actually speaks down into our hearts. That right, if we chase after the wrong things, they poison our hearts. When we worship the wrong things, when we place things in a place where they were never meant to be, we put things in a priority that they were never meant to have, it actually poisons our hearts against those things rather than leading us to worship rightly. And so we saw that there are dangers in idolatry, which really is just putting anything above God, anything in the place of God. But we also saw the beauty of correct worship and that there is an invitation to know God even as we worship Him. Right. So that was the last two weeks. And so this week, we jump into our largest section, our largest chunk, chapters 12 to 26. And we see how these chapters then invite us to see how we can know God through the law. That it's possible to know God through the law. All right, so I have here the 12 to 26 invite us to see how we should live in the light of God's revealed character and God's past faithfulness, right? And that we should then live uh, for Him. So that's really, that's really in a lot of ways what, what we're going to talk about today. But let's be honest just for, for a moment, right? When you, if you were reading Deuteronomy, you came to chapter 12. You got to verse 1 and 2, and it says, sorry, verse 1. These are the decrees and regulations you must be careful to obey when you live in the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. You must obey them as long as you live. You kind of went, do I really need to read this? (laughs) I, I mean, I think that's probably a natural reaction for those of us who are Christians. Like, do I really need to read this? Because, I mean, I don't know. Does anyone get excited about reading law codes? Is that like a thing for people? Like, does that really, I mean, maybe if you're like a solicitor in a certain field, like this excites you. But for most of us, reading law codes is like watching paint dry, right? No thank you. I would rather not. But, and here's the thing, sometimes the Bible is hard work. Sometimes the Bible's hard work, and I think we need to recognize that. That when we actually start getting into these law codes, we begin to actually see the heart of God. Okay? So, the first thing I wanted to do, too, is is I think then as Christians, too, sometimes maybe we live a little bit confused as to my relationship to the law, right? Because we read in, our, in, in the Bible, Paul talks ad nauseam about this in Romans and Galatians, that we are no longer under the law. That as Christians, we are now under, we are compelled by the law of Christ, he says. That it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So, so on one hand, I think sometimes we go to the law and we, go, we skip it even too, not just because it's boring, but because, because we think, well, it doesn't apply to me. That doesn't matter to me and to my life, right? We are no longer under the burden of the law. So I think that's important. What I want to do is just take a couple of minutes. Now, guys, I promise we're going to fly through this. You may have more questions at the end than you have answers. But for the sake of all of us in the room, we're just going to go really quickly. This could be its own sermon. Maybe it should be, but it's not going to be today. All right. So we're just going to really briefly look at Romans chapters five to seven. Okay, there's been like books literally just written on those chapters. Okay, these are these are dense, but they give us a picture, I think, of Paul and and how he helps us to see our relationship to the law. So we are no longer under the burden of law. Paul says that. In other words, Jesus has freed us, I think, from the necessity of the ceremonies and the sacrifices as a way to keep covenant with God, right? We no longer have to, you know, we don't sacrifice bulls in the back room here, right? That's not a thing, right? We've never, you know, we've never done that, never will, okay? A pumpkin or two in the room, maybe, but it's not, it's just for fun, pumpkin carving, right? No, we don't, we don't have to do that. We don't have to make sacrifices. None of us at harvest time bring our grain offerings into the room, right? I mean, we do make some offerings, and we'll talk about that in a moment, what that, you know, um, here in a little bit, but. It's no longer as a way like to keep the covenant, right? To keep right relationship with God. We don't have to sacrifice animals. We don't have to do all of that. We are freed from the necessity of the ceremonies and sacrifices because Jesus, the book of Hebrews tells us, is the one who was the once for all sacrifice. Okay, so we're free from that. This is true. We need to know that and we need to understand that as we come to the law. Instead, we are now free, but we are free to live under the grace of Christ and to live for him instead of, instead of, in sin. So this is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter six. So in verses 15 to 16, Paul makes this argument. He says, well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. Okay? Now... I just, I have to take a brief aside here on that word, of course not, uh, because it's an interesting Greek word. Uh, I had one professor that once said it would be better translated as, ah, like, you know, like, no. You know, it's, it's like, it's very emphatic, right? It's not just, of course not. It's like, absolutely not. What are you thinking? Okay, so, of course not. <laughs> Do you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, Or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Okay? Now, again, that could be its own sermon. We could definitely unpack that. There's a lot there. But what I want us to see is this. Paul recognizes that God's grace has set us free from the law. But it doesn't mean we just get to do whatever we want. Right? That we just live however we want. Now, do whatever makes you happy in the moment. You know, feel good is the ultimate, you know, thing. Or, you know, no. So, if we've been freed from the law is the law bad, right? Because many of us, I think, kind of can sometimes have that view that the law is bad. We can read Galatians, we can read Romans in, in particular, and we're left thinking that the law is bad because Paul has a lot of things to say about the law in Romans chapter 7, okay? But what Paul actually tells us in, 7 to 7, uh, in chapter 7, verses 7 to 13, very specifically, that it wasn't the law that was bad, but sin. And I'm just going to read verses 12 and 13. This is a whole argument that he makes, okay, a case that he makes. But within this he says, but still the law itself is holy and its commands are holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law which is good cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. So the argument, here's the thing. The argument that Paul is making here is that once we know the right thing to do, then, God, then, then Satan can come in and kind of go, yeah, but did he really say? Or are you sure really God has your best interests at heart? I mean, wouldn't it be more fun if you did this? right? It's when we know the right things to do that all of a sudden the wrong things become much more tempting. right? And that's kind of the argument that he's making throughout Romans chapter 7. So we're freed from the law, but the law is not bad. It's sin that is bad, (laughs) okay? It's not the law. So then what is the law good for? If we're no longer under the law, but it's not bad, what is the law good for? The law, I think, is still good for teaching us God's heart and for guiding us in sanctification, all right? Like I said, there's a lot here, okay? We're not going to touch... Calvin and Luther and all this kind of stuff, we're not going to get into that. We're just going to, we're simply going to leave it there to say that I think that the law is still good for teaching us God's heart and guiding us in sanctification. And here's where I look to for this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. This is what Paul says again. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Do you know what kind of Bible most people would have had at that time? They would have had the Old Testament. And he says, all scripture, all scripture is inspired. That's not just the New Testament, the Old Testament as well. And that it is good and useful to teach us what is true, and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. And so, in that way, the law is good, right? Because as I said, it teaches us God's heart, and it guides us in sanctification. Now, sanctification is a word that I know I never use outside of, you know, standing up here in church, right? And probably you don't either, okay? Sanctification really means becoming more like Jesus, or I heard one guy, and I've, and I've used this a lot, to say it really means loving God more and sending less. That's sanctification, okay? So there's your definition for that big church word um, that I've been using there, right? But it's useful for that. It helps us to see God's heart and to guide us in becoming more like him, okay? So now we get into, that's my aside on the law, all right? So we can take a breath for a second. I'll take a sip of water. And we'll just we'll, we'll, we get our bearings. I know that was a lot, and like I said, we're only touching the iceberg there, um, tip of the iceberg. So then, what are these laws that we come across in chapters twelve to twenty-six? Because I imagine during the song time, after Luke had announced that we were reading twelve to twenty-six, you did not go speed read them. Okay, what are the laws in chapters twelve to twenty-six? In other words, the question is this, what, what are we looking at? Okay, because I think that's an important question. What are we looking at? Okay, the first thing we need to recognize is we're looking at something that's 3,500 years old. That doesn't make it bad or good in itself, but it's just important to recognize that what we're looking at is 3,500 years old, which means sometimes it's not going to make sense to us. I think that's just the reality. We do not live in a world, we, like, this is just true. We do not live in a world where we want, where we have to worry about where our meal is going to come from, most of us. We don't. We have super value right there. Worst comes to worst, I can buy an 89 cent loaf of bread and I will have something to eat. Or you know, if Sam doesn't beat us all to the rice, I can buy a bag of rice. I don't, sorry, have you guys seen Sam on a Sunday afternoon? Like I'm just gonna call him out on this. Like, He has like armloads of rice because he loves the rice at super value and he says it's a good deal. So I trust Sam. Like, if you can beat him to it, apparently it's the best rice around. All right? But I'm just saying, okay, Blake, Blake agrees. All right. So, but what I'm saying is, like, we don't have to worry about that, right? But these people did. Women were incredibly vulnerable in, our society, in that society. They still, you know, women still are vulnerable to a degree here, but not like then. And so some of the laws are about protecting women and women's rights. We could get into what a patrilineal society means, but there's no need for that. It's just to say that there are laws in here that we read and we go, well, I don't understand that. That doesn't make sense. But when we realize they're 3,500 years old, they do begin to make sense. So the first thing we need to see is there, there, it's a 3,500-year-old document that outlines laws of a nation. So they're not just individual laws. They're laws that govern a nation, right? The people of Israel were a nation. And this is where sometimes things can get confusing between the church and Israel because Israel was a political nation that existed. They had a king, you know, like even there, they had a governing system. It was different than the church, right? The church is not the same thing. We, you know, we have not staked this claim, put a flag in the dirt and said, this now belongs to us and, you know, Luke is the president or whatever. Like we haven't done that, right? And we're not going to because we're not Israel, okay, in that way. So the people of Israel, this is a guiding document for them as a nation. And it deals with, with how they are to live in the covenant with God, which we'll get to next week, but also how, they're to, how the regulations and the things they're supposed to do, okay, the way that they're supposed to live. And so sometimes it is difficult, all right? It just is, all right? So what else? what, what really is it made up of then? It's made up of mostly... You have prescribed sacrifices. So you find out about the sacrifices that they were supposed to make in order, again, to keep right relationship with God. Okay? You find uh, festivals that they were supposed to take part in. You find uh, regulations, like things that they were supposed to do and not do. You find that they were not, as 12, um, chapter 12, verse 29 uh, and following really gives us, is that they were not to live Like the other nations, when the Lord, your God goes ahead of you and destroys the nations and you drive them out and live in their land, do not fall into the trap of following their customs and worshiping their gods. Do not inquire about their gods saying, how do these nations worship their gods? I want to follow their example. You must not worship the Lord, your God, the way the other nations worship their gods. For they perform for their gods every detestable act that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters as sacrifices to their gods. Nice people, huh? And so God says, That's, I, I do not want to be worshipped that way. You will not worship me that way. You will not act like the people around you. Instead, and then we go forward, this is how you are to live. Because do you know what made sense to people at that time? Sacrificing their children and doing things like that. That was the common, obvious way you pleased the gods, right? And you did it in order to manipulate them and to get what you wanted, right? Like, I'll sacrifice my kid because I might you know, win this battle or whatever. You know, like... And God says, hold on, I operate differently. And I think we need to see it through that paradigm too as we read the law, is understanding their normal way. We are so influenced by the laws of the Old Testament. We live in a culture that has been so influenced by by the you know, just Christendom, Western culture in general, our views on justice, our views on what is right and wrong, so much of it is still left over from the Christian era. It is influenced by Jesus. It is influenced by the law. And so it's hard for us to imagine uh, that the normative of a culture would be sacrificing children. That seems abhorrent to us. That's good, like it should, right? But for them, that's the normal. And so God has to say, uh-uh, that's not how it's going to be. All right. So do not worship like the other nations. They worshiped and practiced rituals as a way to manipulate the gods, to appease them. But God does not need our worship. And that, I think, is important. Because again, the ancient Near Eastern paradigm, the way people looked at it back then, was, well, we have to feed the gods to keep them happy. They need to eat. We were created. In fact, you look at ancient creation narratives outside of Scripture, (coughs) And you find people were created to be slaves to the gods so that they didn't have to farm and they, you know, somebody would feed them. Okay, So even there, there's this paradigm shift that says, no, I don't need your worship. I don't need you to be my slave to feed me and clothe me. Rather, the sacrifices that you are to give in the end are actually for your benefit, not for mine. that's that's the paradigm shift I think we see here making and I, and I don't think we can underestimate how monumental of a shift this was in the way the world was viewed in that time okay so we have these kinds of laws but then along with it we also have legal case law now here we go again okay legal case law what do I mean by this we can read different laws and we can go I don't understand why would that even be a law for instance there is a law that says, if you come to a bird's nest and there is a mother in the nest and she has babies, do not eat the mother. You may eat the babies, but don't eat the mother. Why is that a law? Why is, you know, you write down like, there's like, you know, 600 and some laws, okay, that are supposed to govern a nation. Why is that one of them? I can promise you that is not anywhere in any Irish governing document. Maybe there is buried somewhere, but you know what I mean? (laughs) But like, most likely, I would venture a guess, that's not enshrined in law here in Ireland. But there's a principle behind it. There is a governing principle behind it that says, if you eat the mother, the babies will die. It makes a whole lot more sense. You know that mother can make more babies. You know, that's kind of how chickens work, right? You know, or something like that. You you know, we know they're going to make more babies, so it makes a lot more sense to eat the baby than it does to eat the mother who will keep producing, right? And again, you take that principle and you expand it out to things that have nothing to do with chickens, right? Like, think smart. Be wise about these things. Have some wisdom. Think through things. Don't be irrational and just do something because you're hungry, right? Okay, so there you go. This is not an exhaustive list of everything they were to do and not to do. Rather, much of it is an interpretive framework to live from. Now, we're going to walk through one of them just really, really quickly. So in chapter 25, verse 4, we have a really interesting one. And I picked this one on purpose because I think it illustrates the principle really well. I know I already did the, did the bird in the nest, but let's just, let's just bear, you know, bear with me. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. You must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. Do any of you have an ox? I'm gonna guess no, because I know none of you are farmers in here, so it would be weird if you had an ox. Okay? So then you could just go, that law doesn't apply to meat. Thank you very much. Well, it does, actually, even though you don't have an ox. If you actually look at that law in context, it's within a law about how you, it's within a section about treating people rightly about not taking advantage of people, about not abusing those you could possibly abuse. It's it's like couched within these laws about how you were to treat other people. Why on earth would they put a law in there about an ox? Well, let's walk through it. So it sits within a bunch of laws about how people are to be treated. What could that possibly mean? Well, an ox works hard when they're treading out the grain, and they get hungry. And if an ox is hungry, shouldn't you let it eat some food? Because then it'll keep going, like, like it just, it's the kind thing to do. It's the right thing to do. But what about a person? What about a human being? When a human being works hard, shouldn't they be able to feed themselves? Shouldn't they be able to, you know, if they're working hard for you, shouldn't you pay them so that they can take care of themselves? so that they can provide and have a meal to eat, bread to eat, food to eat. What if we expand that ox law out to be about something more than an ox? And in fact, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul does, which is why I brought it up, right? So St. Paul, Apostle Paul, Paul, however you want to call it, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 to 10, says this, "'What soldier has to pay his own expenses? "'What farmer plants a vineyard "'and doesn't have the right to eat some of its fruit?' What shepherd cares for a flock of sheep and isn't allowed to drink some of the milk? Am I expressing merely a human opinion or does the law say the same thing? For the law of Moses says you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. Was God thinking only about oxen when he said this? Wasn't he actually speaking to us? Yes, It was written for us so that the one who plows and the one who threshes the grain might both expect a share of the harvest. This is exactly how Paul reads and understands the law. And if you know anything about Paul, if you know any of your history, you know he was an expert on interpreting the law. It was what he was trained to do. And that's exactly what he does. He takes that law and he applies it out and says, here's how it makes sense. Here's how this law should be applied. So there you go. When you start reading the laws and... 12 to 26, there's your kind of, uh, I don't know, geek note, whatever you want to call it, to help you to say, maybe if I there's a law I come across and I'm like, why is it there? It's good to sit and think about it as more than just a specific law. Like, should you let an ox eat when it treads? Yes, absolutely you should. It's right there and it says you should, and you should. But it's not just because an ox, you know, because an ox deserves food, it's because God's creatures are, are special and they need to be taken care of. You should treat them right, whether they're a, an ox or a human being, they deserve to be treated right. So this is very often how law works in the Bible. And also 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul once again talks about not muzzling an ox. He brings, he brings that up. If you want to just write that down, look it up later. So the law gives us principles to help us wide, wisely discern the heart of God. jeez. Oh, Me in slides. To help us wisely discern the heart of God in our life. All right. So how the laws are also instruction. Okay. Because Torah does not mean law. Torah means instruction. And within this instruction, within Torah, there are laws. Okay. And so I think it's important that we look at this. We ask the question, how are these laws then? And we kind of have done that, I think. Also instruction. We've kind of done that as we walked through um, the ox law. But I think also it's full of the, this section is full of more than just case law. It's saying how you go and make certain sacrifices at the temple. It's saying how much of something you should bring or how you should go about doing it. It's things that say like, you need to bring a sacrifice to the temple, but if you live too far away from the temple, then you can take the first animal uh, uh, from that season. You can, you know, you can sell it. Take the money and then you can, go to the, you can go to Jerusalem to the temple yourself, buy an animal when you get there and then sacrifice it. You know, it's all the sort of thing that you work out and you kind of go like, oh, okay, you know, you start to glaze over. But these are important. These, these things that God commanded them to do were important. And so I think one of the reasons that they're important, and as we focus on getting to know God, again, we could, we could like deep dive into this. We're not going to, Okay. So here's where I'm going to jump to. I'm going to say this, as we're looking through the lens of being invited to know God, one of the primary ways we know and learn things is through our bodies. Jesus, Louise. Okay. Well, in my, in my notes here, it was, uh, it was a slide, but anyway. One of the primary ways, every, why is it like every time, I need someone to just run my slides for me. This is my, yeah, anyway. One of the primary ways we know and learn things is through our bodies, okay? And and we know this, right? You and I, we know this. And yet often we come to church and it just ends up being a head exercise, me talking for a long time, right? But we learn from more than just listening to somebody talk. In fact, this is actually one of the worst ways to, remember things like you're going to walk out of here and i hope you at least remember five percent of what was said today you know like that we'd be doing good you know like but we learn through our bodies think about riding a bike think about um rollerblading i recently just saw a guy like going down the do we, inline skating rollerblading i what do we call it here is that like anybody rollerblading is that right am i no inline skating okay anyway i saw a guy like looking like he was like in the olympics with speed skating uh, just the other day, he was like going down a little hill and he was seriously, you know, the whole thing like, like he was, anyway, he didn't learn that by just somebody telling him how to rollerblade, right? At some point he had to put him on and he had to figure out he could go really fast down a hill uh, and then he could go even faster if he bent over and really, you know, really got into it, right? So like he was taking his rollerblading seriously. He'd thought about it. He'd, he'd practiced it. He knew how to get good at rollerblading. It wasn't just, Hey, here's how, you know, he just didn't read a, watch a YouTube video or read a manual. He actually had to do it. We learn through doing. Whether that's playing an instrument, whether that's eating cake, right? You learn by doing. Driving a car, sewing, playing video games, even walking. Right? You learn through doing. But what about making right life decisions? Oh, we don't learn through doing on that. We just know know the right answers and then we go and do them, right? No. All of us have made lots of stupid mistakes Lots of us have failed, just like watching a kid, you know, it probably isn't all that different than watching a kid learn to walk. I suppose God watching us learn to to follow his ways and to know him more. It probably is pretty similar to watching a kid learn to walk. As they bust their head, you know, or as they, you know, as they like barely, you know, just barely getting there. And then like, you know, it like it's the same sort of thing. God gave us these laws, and those these laws, these ways, they were to teach the people how to be holy. They were to give the people a framework to live in, to live in a way that honored and glorified God, to live in a way of true humanness. Like that's what this is all about. Living as people who are truly human, who are just and good and right and follow God and live in relationship with him, who live in in shalom. We should not downplay the role of rituals and habits. It's one of the reasons we read Scripture every week. We read a psalm. It's why we do the Lord's Prayer. We are like, you know, you it, that is being embedded into you so that you never forget it, okay? Like, that's the plan. I'll just give it to you right now. We say the Lord's Prayer so that you never forget it. It's important that these Rituals, they are not meaningless and useless. They are valuable because they teach us. We learn through the body how to pray. We learn through the body how to be people who God wants us to be. You are not just a bag of bones with a brain. You are a whole person. Repeated action embeds itself into us and becomes a kind of knowledge. Now, I'm going to quote the great theologian Luke Swain here, as we were talking this morning. He said something I thought was really profound. It was way better than anything I had written on my notes. So I came down here and wrote it down. He said, God changes us from the inside out. That's true. But it is also true that one of the ways that God changes us is from the outside in. Okay? God gave us habits and rituals that change us from the outside in. They work on us at a deep level core level as we repeat them as we do them think about habits think about bad habits and how they change us over time how they form us into somebody you know you think about somebody i don't know anybody who ever set out and said my goal in life is to be a drug addict and an abusive husband i don't know anybody who ever said like that's my, you know they wrote that down in their you know when when their teacher asked them what they want to be when they grow up nobody said that But what happens? Habits and repeated actions that lead us down the path that at the end of the day, once we finally come to, we go, I don't even know how I ever became this person. It wasn't because you read a textbook saying drugs are fun, right? It's through repeated action and habit. God bless you, Tiffany. Thank you. Oh, I needed that. Okay, Um, So it is through repeated action that God changes us. So God changes us from the inside out. Sure, yeah. I mean, the Holy Spirit, come on. Like, okay, we believe in sanctification. We believe the Holy Spirit changes us. But one of the ways the Holy Spirit works on us is from the outside in. Okay, if that makes sense. Through repeated ritual and habit. Now, this is where gospel is always important. Because if we just focus on the outside, if we just focus on doing the right things, right, it could could turn into legalism really, really quickly. And we end up looking like the Pharisees. And we know from the New Testament they're not the good guys, right? Okay? So the gospel is really important in this. But just to say, there is a level at which doing the right thing does change you. (laughs) And it comes through the Holy... Again, it's the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. So... The instructions of chapters 12 to 26 are meant to be lived, to become habits, to become ways of life. And this would give the people of Israel a lens for understanding the world. Okay? That was the goal here. Changing the way they understood and saw the world. I already told you what the ancient Near Eastern world was like. Okay? And so these habits and rituals were to change the way they saw the world. To give them a new set of glasses to see the world. And eventually what happens with glasses? I, I don't wear glasses, but is it, is, it, what I, is it fair to say that sometimes you don't think about the fact you're wearing glasses, like you don't realize you're wearing them? I mean, like, yeah. It's the same way. These habits work on us to the point where all of a sudden we don't even realize we're seeing the world a certain way. We just are. We forget we're wearing the glasses. And that's what these, this, the law is supposed to do here. They inscribe within us a set of virtues. And again, this is why, one of the reasons, as parents, chore, we think chores are important. Like, there, you know, there are a few kids in here, okay? It's not just slave labor. Though I'm not saying it's not nice to have somebody else unload the dishwasher. But what I am saying is that's not the primary reason I have my kids unload the dishwasher, right? It's because I want to teach them to be people who are willing to pitch in and help, to be good members of society, right? It's so, Think of it that way as well. Like I think that, to me at least, that's that's helpful to think about. Like you know, parents giving their kids chores. Yes, we like to not have to do everything, but at the same time, we want to teach you. Okay. So, as we look at Deuteronomy, we find something really interesting going all the way back to uh, chapter twelve. This is something that the law. That this law section is supposed to do, we find it repeated three times in chapter twelve, and it's a command. In chapter twelve, verse seven, it says, "There you and your families will feast in the presence of the Lord." Now, does that sound for, just for a moment? You know, we think of the law as like some terrible, awful thing to have to do. Does that sound really that bad? Feast in the presence of the Lord. That sounds pretty good to me. Um, so, it's not all like some awful rules or something. They'll feast in the presence of the Lord your God and you will rejoice. Now that sounds terrible too. You will rejoice in all you have accomplished because the Lord your God has blessed you. You have a command to rejoice. Now, you come down to verse 12. You must rejoice there in the presence of the Lord your God with your sons and daughters and all your servants. Another command to rejoice. Your version may say celebrate, um, but the word there is rejoice. Uh, and then we come down to verse 18. Verse <clears> 18. <throat> You must eat these in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose. Eat them there with your children, your servants, and the Levites who live in your own towns, uh, rejoicing in the presence of the Lord your God in all you do. A command to have joy. How does that work? How can God command us to have joy? I think we see that there is joy, there is supposed to be joy in the sacrifices. Isn't that weird? Because I think we typically think in the Old Testament of the sacrifices as this very somber event. And and to a degree, it was. Like there was somberness to it. But after the sacrifice comes a feast and there is rejoicing what do they have to rejoice? They have to rejoice that they are now right with God once again, that they are, the, that, you know what? They have had a great harvest or they've had all of these things. Like there is reason to rejoice even within the sacrifice. So Deuteronomy in a way commands joy. But we read here too and we know that God doesn't just want sacrifice. He wants people to experience the joy of His presence and the goodness of God. That grace brings joy, it brings and forgiveness brings joy, and God's presence brings joy. In other words, living in right relationship with God, with other people, with myself, with the world, those moments where, you know, for the, for the Jew making the sacrifice, that was the moment where then shalom was restored, that peace, that word is shalom. Uh, that means peace in the Bible, and it does. It means peace in every direction, with myself, with God, with others, with the world. That in those moments of shalom, there is joy. And I think you and I, we long for that same thing. We long for the joy and we search for it in all kinds of things. We've traded in some ways like joy for just like experiential momentary happiness, but this is something that's better than that. It's more than that. It's, and, and we trade so often the joy that is offered, the joy of God's presence. We don't have to make sacrifices, as I said. We have Jesus, right? But we trade the joy of the presence of the Lord, of being in right relationship with Him and with ourselves and with others, and we chase after other things. Right, Shalom brings joy. These godly ritual, rituals and habits, in a way, inscribe joy into us because they inscribe gratitude, gratefulness. They, they cause us to look outside of ourselves to something greater. The law, in this, in this case, for the Jew, brought about shalom and joy. But I think the law invites people to know God. The law invites us to know God and to love Him. The law invites us to see God's character. Okay, and we're just going to fly through these. But the law invites us then to see tithes and offerings as a way to remember God's faithfulness. You know, we do like that's one of the things that we we still do, right? We're not not sacrificing bulls and you know bringing our grain offerings and all that sort of thing but one of the things that they were to do was, was to tithe things, okay? And that's one of the things that's left over that, that the New Testament says, hey, you need to be doing this, right? You need to be giving. Why is that? Is it just so that we can pay rent on this building? Is it just so someday, you know, like, I can, you know, you guys can finally be rid of me and hire somebody, you know? Like, is that, like, is that, is that what, it, what it's all about? Well, no, not if you read this. The tithes and offerings were meant to bring joy, Remembering God's faithfulness, remembering God's goodness, remembering God's—you know—that God has done incredible things for you and me. In, in Luke um, last week, he didn't get to touch on this because, again, he was flying, flying high on on things. But in Deuteronomy chapter eight, we have this idea that says where, where Moses says, "Be careful, because you're going to get into the land and it's going to be incredible." All, like. Everything is going to be good. The crops are going to grow well. Compared to the desert, it is literally going to be like Eden for you. And what's going to happen is when the crops go well, you're going to be tempted to go, Self, you did a great job this year. You're a wonderful farmer. I'm proud of you. Instead of going, God, your blessings are rich. I didn't make the rain fall. I didn't cause the crop to grow. You did that and one of the things when we bring ties and offerings or you know however we want to talk about stewardship and that sort of thing so when we bring it it's the same thing it's recognizing it's saying god you have provided for me you have taken care of me and i think again that's a shift because i think sometimes we can look at the offering as a burden but it is to bring joy and not only joy for us but guess who else gets to, you know, in the Old Testament, when they make the sacrifices, guess who else gets to enjoy it? Other people. Other people get to enjoy it. And it's the same as we give and we put money in the offering box. It's not just, again, to keep the lights on or to pay rent. It's because we, we celebrate God's faithfulness, His goodness, and then we're able to bring that goodness to other people you know, as, as, as we give out um, from, from our abundance. Okay, so the tithes and offerings were a way of remembering God's faithfulness, goodness, and provision. And then you come to the festivals, which are a particularly special way to participate in the story of God, to remember his faithfulness so that one could trust in his current and future faithfulness. So we were to remember God's past faithfulness so that we could remember he's faithful now and he will be faithful. The regulations then invite us to see the character of God and to love our neighbor as ourself. That's the purpose of the law. I would just say, take a moment and read chapter 15. If you want, like if you're you're trying to pick and choose some chapters, 15 and 16 are really good ones. In chapter 15, we see the heart of God on full display because you find what was called the year of Jubilee. Every seven years, all debts are forgiven. Every seven years, anybody who had had to force, who had had to get, who had had to sell themselves into slavery, set free. The land goes back to the people it originally belonged to. You find an incredible freedom. A reset every seven years where, you, where God says, you get a second chance. You get a second go at things. Or a third go where, you know, 21 years later you get, you know, like it was there to care for people who were on the margins so that those at the top weren't to take advantage of those who were on the margins. You see this over and over. God's heart and we live in a, in, a, in a culture right now, I think, where, not so much in Ireland, but again, because America's America is America, we're loud and obnoxious and we talk about things everywhere. Um, you see this like split between people in America who, who want to focus purely on, on social justice. And then you find other, other people who are very outspoken to say, like, no, we don't need to worry about that. It's all about spiritual things and taking care of the spirit and, you know, and, and bringing people into the church. I would argue that that the Bible does not see that as a false dichotomy, or does not see that as two opposite things. That when you read Deuteronomy and you see God's heart, and you see that people are whole human beings, they're not just a brain on a stick, you see that God cares deeply for people who are hurting, for people who are vulnerable, on the margins of society, And that as followers of Jesus, like we need to do something about it. Justice is always social. Now, what I will say is what we often deem as social justice. I think it can have its problems. That when it is separated from a robust, a strong, a big view of God, when it is separated from the grace of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, when it is motivated by the wrong things, when it is not motivated by a love for God, by by the fact that God has done incredible and wonderful things to me, when it is void of the gospel, it runs into problems. Now again, you don't have time to run down that rabbit trail. But just to say, God looks at people as his image bearers. And And if we're going to do the same, then we're going to care about the things that God cares about when we see people hurting, and that will involve justice. Because we see, even here, we find some pretty harsh punishments when you read, chapter, when you read the law. And as you read them, many of them you find are for people who have really abused and taken advantage of somebody else. God cares about justice. And so the law teaches us through our bodies to be more like God, to be just and fair, to love people with grace and mercy, and to see that which ruins his good world for what it is. Destructive and invasive. I have this beautiful picture of rhododendron. It's a beautiful plant. You see it all over Connemara. It's an invasive species that runs riot and ruins things. It does serious damage. And I think this is how God describes sin, like sees sin as this thing that destroys. The Department of Agriculture says that rhododendron is an aggressive colonizer, which is both environmentally and eco- ecologically damaging to infected sites. Okay, And it goes on, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, I would have earlier, but I'm not now. Um, it's, but it finishes by saying this. In some cases, infestations have been so expensive to control that the land has been abandoned. It grows, and it looks... that's the picture of rhododendron it grows and it's beautiful and sometimes sin on the outside looks beautiful it looks nice, it looks fun, it looks great or whatever but what God says is the problem with it is not that in the moment it's fun or whatever but that at the core it's soul destroying and that's exactly what rhododendron does when it's in bloom it looks beautiful but it destroys everything underneath it. The ecology underneath it, it destroys everything. And so through the law, we learn that we are sinners, that rhododendron has gotten into our life. We see that. The law exposes that. So that wasn't going to get into Luther, but that's one of the things that Luther pointed out, like the, that the law exposes sin. We become very aware of sin when we read the law. But one of the things I think we also see in the law not only that we are sinners is that God as he says in Exodus about himself is slow to anger. He's compassionate and merciful and he is full of grace. And that sin sin is costly. And so Deuteronomy calls us to zaha which is the Hebrew word for remember. 14 times the word remember shows up in Deuteronomy. 7 of them are in this section. And five of them called them to remember the Exodus. Remember what you went through in the Exodus. Remember when people treated you like an object. Do not do the same. That's basically what it is over and over. Remember when you were used and abused, when you were taken advantage of, when you had no opportunity. Do not do that to other people. We're to remember. And they were to remember three festivals, the Passover, the weeks, and booths that you find in chapter 16. That's one of the ways they are to remember because it takes Israel on a journey of remembering from where they were to where they are. They participated in repeated rituals that taught them who they were and to have joy knowing they belong to God. We won't get into the festivals as much as I would like to, But these festivals take us from Exodus, from the Passover. So you've got Passover as the feast. You get Weeks, which is a festival that comes before the harvest. And you get Booths, which is a festival that comes after the harvest. And so we find Passover is a very somber festival. Right? Because it remembers the great suffering that they had. And then you come to Weeks and to Booths, and they're very celebratory. They're fun. (laughs) Because they remember the gratitude. They remember to, they cultivate gratitude that situates us into right relationship with God, ourselves, others, and the world. In many ways, you could say it is eating to remember. Maybe we should have had a church dinner today. But you know what? Because in chapter eight, it says, lest you forget. And I think that's important. The eating to remember. But you know what? Every Sunday we do eat to remember, whether we're having a church dinner or not. That's communion. We've been given this ritual, if you want to call it that, this rite of of communion that we take here at church weekly and we do it because we want to remember. We want to remember what we have been saved into. As Christians, we celebrate seasonal feasts, right? We celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Easter. Or if you want to say Advent, And and Lent and those times we walk through that right and as a church you know we don't follow the church calendar super closely but those are two things you know two two things that we do as a church right Advent and Christmas and Lent and Easter those are important because they walk us through the events they help us to remember but we also celebrate the weekly feast of the Lord's Supper where we too eat to remember and so I'm 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 finishing up here. We'll see if the slide is right. Yes, it is. Okay. We must continually remember what we have been saved from and what we have been saved into. That you and I, as Christians, have been saved by grace through faith. Yes, we are not under the law, but we have been set free to live for Christ. That we have been set free to live in relationship with Him. That we have been set free to enjoy Him. Mm. Remembering what we were saved from reminds us of God's incredible grace and it motivates us to be just and grateful people. And as we remember, we more and more come to the knowledge of God and our place in His kingdom. And that place is one of family, one of children. We are dearly loved children, rescued by his grace and called into life with him. As Jesus says in John 10:10, 10, 10, a life to the full, full of the joy of his presence, where we will enjoy him forevermore at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so as we come to communion, it is one of these beautiful feasts that we do weekly where we remember what God has done for us. Right? We look to the past at God's faithfulness. We celebrate in the now that God continues to be faithful to you and to me. And we look forward to the day when Jesus returns. And we feast with him in his presence again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the joy of your...